It's the show where Hawaii's newsmakers come to talk and to take your questions live. From the nation's capital to Honolulu Hale, from the state legislature to the fifth floor, we bring the experts to you and ask them what you want to know. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Palaisuji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs. Happy Aloha Friday. Thanks so much for tuning in here on this last day of 2022 and our last show of the year. I'm Ryan Kalei joined by Yanji Denise, and this is Spotlight Hawaii on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. Yanji, there have been a number of issues that we've tackled this year, uh, but one of them that continues to be a concern is Red Hill. That's right. And it's something that we will likely be talking about in 2023 for much of our conversations here on Spotlight Hawaii. Joining us this morning is David Henkin, an attorney with Earth Justice, and Wayne Tanaka, who is the executive director of the Sierra Club of Hawaii. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here this morning. Good to be here. Okay, nice so to be here. David, I want to start with you. You know, since the last time we spoke on this, obviously a lot has happened uh, at Red Hill with that fire suppressant spill and, you know, just the pause in the defueling operation now uh, said to be to have restarted just this week. Uh, in your estimation, how is the Navy doing on this process? And in light of what you've seen over the last few months, what's your confidence in how things are going? Uh, my confidence is, is, is unfortunately very low. Um, you know, since we last spoke, uh, things haven't gotten better, they've gotten worse. Uh, so we have yet another instance in which the Navy has demonstrated its inability to operate this facility safely uh, with about 1,300 gallons of uh, firefighting foam, which has these forever chemicals in them that could be living in our water supply and, and you know, in our family's bloodstream uh, forever being poured out on the ground. Uh, so. Uh, they have yet to release uh, the video to the public so that we can see what happened with the spill. Um, so, you know, really the, Na the, the Navy's notion of being open and transparent is not my notion or, or the dictionary notion of open and transparent. We really just don't know what's going on. Uh, things just seem to be getting worse. And, um, you know, the latest thing that came out is the Navy wants to keep the facility open and ready for some future business that they won't even tell us what they have in mind. Uh, they don't want to uh, render the tanks unusable for the future. And um, that raises a lot of concerns because there's really no trust here. And at some point, when you have a reckless driver like the Navy, you need to take away the keys to the car. And they cannot have access uh, to these massive tanks over our water supply. Those need to be rendered completely inoperable. Yeah, Wayne, same question for you. How do you think, you know, since we last spoke, things are going? Yeah, yeah unfortunately, I'd have to agree with David that, you know, we're, we're still in harm's way. We're still in a bad place. And, you know, we're still looking at a timeline where we may have to live under existential threat for, you know, well over a year um, still yet. And and this AFFF spill, this, these forever chemicals, that adds a whole new dimension of urgency to this crisis. Um, you know, even from what's already been released, you know, I have very significant concerns. Uh, we don't know if they actually were able to clean up all of the contamination and they don't have the cell testing that could verify that. And yet, you know, now we've been told that they've 
gone ahead and poured concrete over the areas that they've contaminated, uh, which is you know, very, very, very concerning. Yeah, I want to focus in a little more on this latest incident uh, with this fire suppressant and the forever chemicals. Uh, Wayne, based on some of the information that you've gathered and, and you've that has come into uh, you know your organization and what you guys have developed, I mean, there obviously when you hear a term like forever chemicals, uh, there is alarming for, for many of us who just know some of the basic information. I mean, how damaging is this just for the environment? What are the long term impacts that something like this could have? And is there, has there been any communication into when you will receive further information or reports onto the severity of this uh, latest incident? Yeah, so I think what folks need to understand is that these chemicals are extremely toxic, you know, thousands of times more toxic than, than jet fuel. You know, one, you know, there's a, there's a saying that, you know, one teaspoon could contaminate the water supply for an entire city. And that's, that's you know, that's very true with, with the recent EPA health advisory guidelines um and and you know in terms of timeline they're called forever chemicals for a reason right so they're going to be anything that's in our environment is going to be there for centuries you know for over a thousand years and and that's that's all of time for you know these contaminants to move through the environment um percolate through the soil accumulate in fish and and and, and other things and and so you know we need to be really, really, really concerned about the adequate uh, containment of this contamination. And, and David, same question for you, but maybe more on, on what, how do you think uh, you'll, the organization that you manage and you work with will be able to get some of that information that is necessary? I mean, what are the conversations like in terms of getting uh, a detailed description of what just happened and, and how to prevent this from happening again? Um, well, in terms of the, the, what the conversations are like, it's like driving into a brick wall. Um, you know, uh, I watched your program a couple of weeks ago. I really appreciate your having Vice Admiral Wade on here. Uh, and he spoke about, you know, getting the reports out to the public and getting the videotape out to the public as soon as he could do that, uh, claiming that, a, that he couldn't do it because somehow it would uh, interfere with his investigation or the investigation that's underway. I, I don't understand that. Um, you know, there can't be any national security uh, concerns about uh, a fuel spill video uh, at the at the facility, and that should just be released so that we the we the people who are in harm's way uh, can take a look and see what happened. Um, and the Navy just you know does not release this information, um, and and so we're left in the dark, which is totally unacceptable. And as uh, Wayne mentioned. Uh, they haven't even gotten back the soil samples uh, to make sure that their remediation effort was effective, and they paved it over. Um, so, you know, it seems like uh, just a literal cover-up. Um, and uh, when you're talking about chemicals that are so highly toxic and so dangerous, um, we deserve to know. And of course, the other thing is we still have 104 million gallons of fuel uh, in the facility with a disabled uh, firefighting system. Um, you know, so I, I don't know why they went with a firefighting system that includes these toxic chemicals, uh, but that's now been disabled and we still have 104 million gallons of fuel. And so the one thing I agree with the vice admiral about is that every day that the fuel remains in that facility uh, is an existential threat to the people of this island. And so um, we need, you know, the, the notion that a facility that they claimed a year ago was vital for national security and was vital to get fuel uh, to our military um, 
you know, they claim it's going to take a whole another year uh, to be able to drain the tanks and get the infrastructure up to up to snuff so they can do that safely. Um, it's just you, you get the sense that they're just dragging their feet. And um, and when you're dealing with a threat to our populace, that's just unacceptable. One of the other issues that both of you have raised, and I'd love for you to talk about, uh, you know, when you talk about video, there also is this issue of the cameras. This has been something from day one that has been an issue. We were initially told that there was no video uh, of the fuel spill that sort of started this whole conversation for our community. And and of course, later there was a video shot on a cell phone that uh, Honolulu Civil Beat was able to obtain and release to the public. Now we understand that the camera system throughout the facility will not be fully operational, even as they do the defueling, which is projected to be not for another year from now. Um, Wayne, can you talk about your concerns about not having an intact video surveillance system? And, you know, I mean, for a lot of us, it's very hard to understand. The Navy says this is national security. They can't go with a wireless system. System because, of course, uh, then perhaps, uh, you know, nefarious people could tap into that system and somehow obtain information that would be that could compromise our safety. Uh, but it, it does seem somewhat I, I don't know. I, I'm very confused personally as to why they cannot come with an alternative if the current system doesn't work. Your thoughts on the video surveillance issue on this? You know, the it's, you know, I'm just as confused, I think, as, as everyone else as to why they're saying it's it's going to take up to 18 months just to procure seven security cameras. Uh, you know, they've pointed to supply chain issues, but this isn't like trying to maintain a, a supply of toilet paper. This is just a handful of uh, equipment that, you know, would play an essential role, uh, not just in the security of this facility, which, you know, as we know, it has 104 million gallons of fuel. Um, just perched 100 feet above our drinking water, uh, but also, uh, you know, these cameras can provide an objective perspective on what's going on and what's what's happening and what's happened in the facility. And unfortunately, you know, maybe you know, thus far the video we have received hasn't been very flattering in terms of the Navy's operations. And so, you know, for them, it, it's they may see it as an inconvenience. I think for us, it's a it's absolutely critical as, in terms of transparency and accountability. You know, David. If, oh, oh, if, I, if I could just add on, a little bit on that, it's it's not as if they discovered yesterday that the cameras weren't working, and hey, it's going to take us another period of time to 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 get some cameras. Uh, as soon as the spill happened, uh, Thanksgiving of last year, uh, they were aware that they didn't have cameras in place. That the that there was not the monitoring that you would expect in a facility of this importance. And so here we are 12 months, 13 months down the pike, and now they're going to say it's going to take another 18 months. I mean, you know, that is um, totally unacceptable and, and, and just is very indicative of the lack of, you know, real meaningful concern. Uh, you know, the, the Navy certainly is now talking the talk when they when they reach out to the public and say how they concerned they are about it. But actions speak louder than words. And, you know, if you felt like you had a situation that needed to be monitored, as this obviously does, you wouldn't take this long uh, to fix it. And, and then the last thing is on the national security claim that somehow, um, you know, these cameras uh, that need to be very secured. What is it about the facility that somehow someone who's unfriendly to the United States could find out? I mean, uh, you know, there's schematics in the Navy's reports that they, that they, that they, that they make publicly available. I, I just, it's hard to imagine, you know, they kind of trot out national security and expect everyone to take it face value. But why is it that you can't just have a camera that 
lets you know if fuel's leaking, if firefighting foam is leaking. Um, I really don't see the national security concern there. Uh, something else that has drawn a, a lot of concern from lawmakers that we've spoken to on this program was just the overall timeline of how long this will take to uh, defuel th this facility and really ensure that everything is gone. Uh, in talking to Vice Admiral Wade, one of the things that he continued to mention was the repairs that are needed. 253, I believe, was the number of repairs that need to be happening simultaneously while the defueling is happening in order to ensure a safe removal. Uh, you know, so one of the questions that I had and, and want to pose to you, we'll start off with you, uh, David, is, uh, you know, with these 253 repairs that need to happen, I mean, were any of your organizations aware of some of these other issues that have now become a delay for the defueling? Uh, it's hard to believe that all of a sudden, you know, these repairs that need to be done weren't uh, identified earlier in this process, deeming this facility to be something that needed to be looked after. Uh, your thoughts about the repairs and the overall schedule and the timeline that has been presented thus far? Um, thanks for the question. I mean, we have to bear in mind that um, a year ago, uh, or up until a little over a year ago, this was a functioning facility that it's a fuel storage facility, but it's also a fuel distribution facility that you don't have the fuel unless you want to move it in and out. And until the Department of Health issued its order in December of last year, uh, telling the facility it had to stop operations, it was operating. And, uh, you know, the Navy fought tooth and nail uh, against the uh, Department of Health's emergency order and saying, no, no, we can safely continue um, operating this facility and it shouldn't have to be defueled. Now, all of a sudden that they need to get the fuel out, uh, there's this long laundry list of repairs that they couldn't possibly uh, do more efficiently than taking a year and a half plus uh, to get them in place. And, and again, that sort of strains uh, credulity. Um, and then, you know, as far as whether they knew about the need for these repairs before, I'm going to give them that. I think that they were so negligent in operating this facility uh, that I believe them when they say that we really didn't pay attention to all the ways in which the facility was crumbling. Um, so it is crumbling and we do need to make sure the fuel gets out um, safely. But I can't imagine that you need to do all of this work to get a pipe into a tank and get it out of that facility. I mean, there's got to be a more efficient way. And if they wanted it to get out more quickly, I'm sure they'd figure out a way to do that. Wayne, your thoughts on the overall timeline and some of these repairs that have been brought up as one of the reasons why it's going to take so long. Yeah, I mean, as as, as David um, mentioned, you know, these this facility was operating, um, you know, according to the Navy in January of last year, uh, it, in a manner that meets or exceeds all regulatory and industry standards, they actually pull out a a press release uh, to that effect, and uh, which is now conveniently removed from their Navy website. Um, you know, yeah, I, 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 it's just unacceptable to have to wait, you know, twenty months um, before just the fuel is removed from this facility, much less the sludge, the cleaning chemicals, all of the other contaminants uh, that may threaten our water supply. Um, if you looked at the Joint Task Force's organizational chart, there's really nothing in there that looks at alternative ways to defuel, to, to expedite um, the process of making us safe. Uh, and, and I think that's something that's, you know, we really need some federal intervention on, uh, as well as you know, just a recognition that this is an emergency and it requires emergency action and emergency resources. 
David, going back to the subject of cameras, the Navy says that in the absence of having cameras uh, up and running in those areas, they will put additional personnel. They say because the function of the camera really is is to provide surveillance so that if there is a spill that is happening, uh, they have you know eyes on it through the cameras. And since they won't have the cameras there, they will have personnel in place instead. Is that adequate to you? Do you think that that takes the place of cameras? No, absolutely not. Uh, for two reasons. Number one, um, I'm sure they don't have the personnel stationed there today, 24-7, uh, the way a camera would be. Um, so what they're talking about is having personnel on the ground when they know fuel is moving and they, they think they know the places where they should be looking uh, for potential leaks. And so uh, certainly in the absence of cameras, we want to have people there, but uh, they should be monitoring that facility around the clock because as we've seen, uh, you know, this um, AFFF, this firefighting foam that was spilled was not during a was not during a defueling operation. Uh, this was just something that happened and things keep happening at this facility. And so we need to have uh, those cameras on and operational all the time. The other thing is, um, you know, with a camera, then there's going to be some video and some documentary evidence that hopefully eventually the people and their elected officials are going to be able to see. And so, uh, you know, that they have some sailor on the ground with eyes on uh, on the situation and then reporting back to us, uh, I would rather see the, the footage myself because, yep. um, you know, uh, just in terms of the trust is gone. Wayne, can you, can you speak a little bit to that, this whole trust issue? The Navy has said repeatedly on this program and elsewhere that they want to be fully transparent, that they are partners with the community, that they themselves use that water source for their own personnel. And so clearly they have a vested interest in, an interest in protecting it. Uh, what's your view up until this point about the trust between the Navy and, and our community? You know, one of, one of the things that, I mean, there's just there's just so many examples of, of how their words have their actions have failed to to meet their words you know one of the things you, you you can look to like pretty obviously is how they've been treating the people they've poisoned um their own service members families are still struggling uh for adequate health care uh for rec you know just for information about what they've been exposed to uh you know they've they've set up a red hill clinic that uh apparently takes hours uh, to and multiple phone calls just to get an appointment and it's not open to everyone that's been impacted like they said it, it would be uh you know just just the way they've been treating their you know folks that are that they've directly harmed uh in itself is i think an indication of their lack of trustworthiness unfortunately hawaii is not the only community that's having to deal with these types of interactions with the military. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak to what you're learning, the conversations that you're having with others who are dealing with a similar situation, maybe not to the degree of this actual contamination of an aquifer, uh, but anything that might be similar. Uh, David, we'll start with you. What are you learning from other communities and hearing about their working relationship with the military? Um, yeah, uh, Earth Justice is working closely with communities in Guam uh, that like uh, like Oahu has a sole source aquifer that that provides the northern aquifer in Guam provides uh, drinking water to about 70% of the island's population. Uh, and there are a number of military facilities that are over that aquifer, including an Air Force base in the north. And uh, for decades, uh, the US Air Force has been disposing of its bombs and other munitions and other hazardous waste. Uh, by literally taking them onto a beach on the bare sand and blowing them up on the beach 
uh, on the uh, with no containment at all, uh, and with those contaminants uh, being leaching down into the soil, uh, out into the ocean, uh, and people are very concerned about contamination of their soil source aquifer from that. So Earth Justice has been um, working with the community there to try and hold the Air Force accountable uh, to protect that water supply, which also presumably um, serves the Air Force and Navy service people who are in Guam. Uh, but unfortunately, the, the, the military has a lot of difficulty giving up these World War II era practices that in the 21st century we know um, uh, threaten our environment and, and our health. And Wayne, if you can speak to the conversations that you're having with other communities and maybe with you know the, the Sierra Club as a whole on a national level, the type of support and uh, resources and you know just what the organization is trying to do to help communities like ours. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, you know, as as we've been learning throughout this crisis, we're far from the only example of a community that's had its environment uh, contaminated by you know Department of Defense installations. Um, you know, you know. We actually have a local group, uh, Shimanchu Wai Protectors, uh, who are uh, uh, Uchinanchu Okinawans who understand what it's like to have their ancestral homelands contaminated because they're finding forever chemicals now, you know, in, in folks' blood, in their drinking water, you know, in the in sacred springs that they use for for um, religious practices. Uh, you know, folks in uh, in Sibukok and St. Lawrence Island, that's a former military installation. Their subsistence resources, their waters are, are highly contaminated. Um, across the continent, you know, everywhere there's been a military installation. Now they're finding, you know, whether it's PCBs or or forever chemicals or you know, or fuel, um, you know, their their water, their foundations of life, you know, have been contaminated potentially irreversibly. And so the National Sierra Club is, uh, you know, does have a toxics program. Uh, they've been helping us understand uh, what's going on with this uh, AFFF, these forever chemicals. Uh, they are, you know. Um, offering support uh, including water testing so we can establish baselines of course that will require you know access i think to um some water sources uh, that we might not have access to currently um and you know they're also working communities across the continent to uh, help them understand you know the the threats um that are they're, they're they're dealing with i'd like to ask you both about what you think is, is an acceptable sort of end for this facility uh david you referenced it, this at the top of our program as well there is an ongoing conversation of course there does seem to be agreement between the pentagon and and your organizations and the state government that this facility does need to be decommissioned as soon as possible but what should happen long term to the tanks themselves are these conversations about what they're calling closure in place or perhaps repurposing this facility for something else uh, david let's start with you in and then, and then we'll hear from Wayne about what should happen to the tanks themselves once they are successfully defueled. Yeah, thank you for that question. I, I think one thing that your viewers need to understand, uh, first of all, about the, the options. Uh, the Navy recently released a uh, what they called an independent third-party report uh, by a group called uh, Jacobs uh, on what their options were, which very interestingly, completely backed up what the Navy had said a month earlier that it wanted to do closure in place and leaving open the option for future uh, reuse. What your viewers need to understand is Jacobs is not independent. They may be not the Navy, uh, but they are on a long-term $99 million contract with the Department of Defense. Uh, so that they parrot exactly what the Navy just said in their report is not too surprising. There's no independence here. Um, but in terms of the options, I mean, it's very simple. Uh, we can't count on the Navy 
uh, to resist the temptation to reuse this facility uh, that is located only 100 feet over our aquifer and put in it substances that would put us in harm's way again. Uh, so whatever option is pursued needs to make sure that this facility can no longer be used uh, for uh, storing anything. This is a lousy place to store anything. Uh, and so closure in place, uh, holding open the door to some future reuse is totally unacceptable. And even if this administration, this presidential administration is committed to closure, we don't know what the next administration uh, is going to think about that or the one after that. And we here on Oahu, we cannot abide by um, you know, potentially hazardous materials placed right over our aquifer. So this was, you know, an understandable solution uh, 80 years ago. It's a lousy way uh, to store things in the 21st century. And so whatever they do, they need to put enough material in there to make it unusable in the future. And Wayne, what are your thoughts as to what should ultimately happen to those tanks? You know, you know, I, you know, I have to echo and add on to what, what David just, just said. I mean, from a practical perspective like these these tanks are not usable i mean they're, they're eight years old they're actively corroding um there's there's water that passes through soil and picks up you know um you know acidic things and that percolates in down into the facility it's been doing that for 80 years um you know there's welds that hundreds of wells that have been made over the decades are, have been found effective we, we just can't possibly use these tanks for anything re reliable i mean we're you know, they're they're, and that's that's a concern that I have about the, the defueling timeline is that it, it's not safe to keep fueling these tanks as, as much as Navy uh, tries to argue for their their integrity. Um, and so, yeah, so anything that happens, we have to think about what, you know, what we w would think acceptable to have happen to our, our water, and 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 think of the timelines of of not just you know next few decades, but you know, like over the next century or so. Otherwise, we're just saddling our grandchildren with another Red Hill crisis. We are just a few minutes uh, away from the end of the show, but I did want to allow you guys to have a final thought. But also, uh, you know, this has sparked a lot of, uh, obviously, interest by community members who feel helpless at times. They recognize the importance of this issue. And uh, many want to do something. They just don't know how to help. Uh, you, you both work with organizations that, uh, you know, are connected to other uh, groups that have actively advocated against what's happening at Red Hill. Uh, so in your final thoughts, uh, Wayne and, and David, Wayne, we'll actually start with you. Uh, how can people get involved? Uh, what are ways in which people who have a voice and, and really want to do something, what would you encourage them to do uh, in this situation? Uh, so there are a number of, uh, you know, groups that folks can follow, you know, uh, you know on, on social media. That's how we uh, have been able to get information out uh, relatively quickly, as, including about actions that folks can take. So following Oahu Water Protectors, which is uh, one of the leaders of the grassroots uh, shutdown Red Hill campaign. Of course, you can follow uh, Sierra Club Hoy or Sierra Club HI. Um, but one of the, you know, I think most important things that people can do is to talk to each other and and reach out. You know, if if you have a, a if a group, uh, a, you know, a church or a, a club that wants to learn more, and more than happy to provide presentations, provide information, answer questions. We need as many people to understand what's going on as possible because it's going to continue to be a, it's going to be a fight for the, for the next year. And David, I'll give you the final word, your thoughts on how people get involved and, and just your final message here this morning. 
Yeah, well, um, you know, how people can get involved is to continue to remind their elected officials every day uh, that this is a, an issue that their own health, their children's health, all of our health depends on. And um, I really got to give appreciation to our congressional delegation that's done a wonderful job uh, of, of, of raising this issue up. Uh, this is not a situation where we have to be, you know, pinching pennies. Uh, there is adequate funding uh, there. Our congressional delegation has managed to secure $2.2 billion uh, to address the environmental and health disaster the Navy has created. And we just need to, um, you know, keep this on the front burner and make sure uh, that, our, that our state government, our federal government understands that job number one uh, is to keep all of us safe, keep our kids safe. And the only way we're going to do that is to get the fuel out of the ground. And so let's not be having the same conversation this time next year. Let's not give the Navy another year of opportunities to further poison our water supply. Uh, let's, let's get safe and let's do it as quickly as we possibly can. David Henkin and Wayne Tanaka, thank you both for being here on this last day of 2022. We really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Happy New Year. You know, Ryan, at times I find that conversation chilling to think about just how much fuel is still above the aquifer and, you know, the ongoing conversation and real conflict between the Navy and our community and our elected officials. Uh, we all say we want to get to the same place, which is defueling this facility, but how we get there obviously uh, is in conflict at the moment. And it was interesting, uh, especially to hear about the, uh, the fire suppressant spill. I, I did not know myself that uh, that area has now been paved over and, you know, what that could mean for future surveillance of that land. Uh, that is, uh, you know, something that I would like to hear the Navy explain their rationale for and, and hear more about. That was news to me. But overall, uh, you hear a lot of frustration, especially, Ryan, on the issue of these cameras. Yeah, you know, that was one of the pushbacks that we heard is just the overall transparency, transparency that the Navy is claiming to have, uh, but really not providing much evidence of some of the things that are requesting, including that soil sample report of this uh, latest incident with these fire suppressants, the impact that was, uh, you know, that was done and, and the impact study that was done is still information that has not been released and information about the cameras. Uh, we also heard some pushback there, especially uh, from David talking about uh, the argument that the Navy's presenting of national security and the integrity of the investigation. And that is why we have not been able to receive some of the footage that they are holding on to of this latest incident uh, and some pushback saying that uh, there really isn't a, a military or strategic uh, component that is attached to this spill and that that uh, footage should be released. Uh, and we also just, again, heard a, a lot of pushback from the overall handling of this and, and their thoughts about moving forward and what should be done with this facility. Yeah, I expect to be a lot of conversation about what should happen to the to the tanks themselves. There is agreement, of course, on what should happen to the fuel. There are a lot of questions on what should happen to the facility. We will stay on this issue. We, of course, will invite the Navy back to answer more questions, more of your questions, uh, along with you know state and local leaders and the congressional delegation. They have been, as, as they noted, they're very successful in securing funding for this. Um, but it doesn't seem that money is really accelerating the timeline. And that is something that we all want to see pushed forward. So we will continue to stay on this. And very interesting, Ryan, you know, the last day of 2022. Looking forward to great shows uh, in the next year. But wow, what a year on Spotlight Hawaii we have had. Yeah, you know, it really has been a, a great time to connect our viewers. We want to first of all thank uh, those loyal viewers who tune in every single day uh, asking those questions, we try our best to incorporate 
your questions and your comments uh, into the conversation. We'll continue to do more of that in the new year. And there have been uh, some pretty memorable moments. Uh, I got to ask you, Yanji, as we close <laughs> out, uh, is there any specific show or any conversation that we've had over the year that stands out to you the most? Well, I always love having Mayor Rick Blanchiardi on this program. We cover such a wide range of topics. He always says he wants to do a full hour, but we never seem to be able to book that. Uh, but we always cover a lot of news with him, and he, he is someone who is very candid and breaks a lot of news. And, of course, we had so many political debates and conversations. Uh, those were also very memorable. Ryan, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think the first Democratic uh, forum that we had with the three candidates that were vying for the Democratic nomination uh, you know, that was their first time kind of all being together. And we really saw the sparks fly. And, and it, it was funny because after our, you know, uh, conversation with these candidates, they kind of took a different tone in the other in the other debates that were held. So uh, interesting to see how the conversation was in, in our show and, and what happened moving forward. But it has been uh, a crazy year for Hawaii with so many things happening. But we always appreciate you, the viewers, for being involved and being a part of the conversation. We look forward to an exciting 2023. Can't believe we're saying that. Uh, we'll and see so, you next year. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you next year. Stay safe and aloha. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs.